You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech, Future Tech Health Podcast. I have a returning guest, uh, Dominic D'Agostino. He's a researcher and a professor with a diverse background in neuroscience, molecular pharmacology, nutrition, physiology. Uh, he's a PhD and a tenured associate professor in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at University of South Florida, Morsani College of Medicine. Uh, we've had him twice. This is the third time. He's a great guest. He's got a wealth of knowledge. He recently completed a mission um, kind of in partnership or collaboration with NASA, where uh, they were under the sea and uh, doing various experiments and, you know, for a period of time to emulate uh, what it would be like to uh, to travel in space. So that's my uh, quick assessment of it, but I'll know of a much better way to tell you about it. So, Dom, thanks for coming back. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Richard, for having me. Yeah. So tell me, what, what was this... Um, NASA mission and what, you know, what was the goal of it and what was it like? Sure. Uh, so NASA does a lot of training to prepare their astronauts uh, for deep space exploration uh, or even just not even deep, so just to the uh, space station, for example. And they have uh, a number of uh, what they call space analogs. And there are uh, a variety of different analogs that researchers take part in and these analogs the the main thing is to vet out technologies and concepts that can then move to space and uh, Mm. most of the analogs all of them actually excluding uh, the one that I was part of and my wife was recently part of too uh, use just everyday people but the NASA extreme environment mission operation uh, analog, and that we just completed uh, number 23 expedition, uh, uses, trains astronauts, and that's, it's part of their training for space exploration. And, uh, hmm. and within the analog, uh, it's under sea. So when you're in the water, that simulates neutrobuoyancy. So, uh, or microgravity, you could be weighted down or the surface of the, the lunar surface or the surface of Mars. And, uh, and typically the, uh, the, you're inside a habitat and 
they try to mimic particular situations, whether it be lunar or Mars exploration. And inside the habitat, it's dry. So we're living underwater, uh, the, the aquanauts. When you live underwater for more than 24 hours, you become an aquanaut. And uh, 60 or more astronauts are aquanauts. And uh, hmm. so when you live underwater for more than 24 hours, you become an aquanaut. And during that time in the habitat and outside the habitat, when you're walking on the floor of the Atlantic, uh, which is where the habitat is based, you do a variety of objectives that are tightly correlated with space missions. And that can be, you know, tools, concepts, different devices that NASA has. And uh, they do this in partnership with the European Space Agency. So ESA has a bunch of objectives too. So it becomes a, a really intense mission that's really designed to mimic the space environment. Yeah, so, I mean, outside of the habitat, you know, you're in a suit, like a diving suit, and you're in the water, so I can see it would emulate microgravity. Yeah. But inside the habitat, is there any way for them to adjust the condition so that it somehow resembles lesser gravity, or is it just you can only emulate the spacewalk part of it? Yeah, that's a good question. So the the only thing that's really not mimicked uh, in the habitat would be gravity. Right. So uh, and perhaps in future long duration space flights, uh, maybe they can mimic gravity like, uh, you know, Space Odyssey, uh, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey, where they have, you know, essentially a, a centrifuge or something like that. And that that lack of gravity really contributes to uh, many problems. Uh, but there's also space radiation. Uh, but believe it or not, the biggest problem, the biggest not not problem, the biggest challenge that deep space exploration presents is really living in that confined habitat uh, for long duration. So a lot of the objectives will center around things like team cognition, psychological health, uh, sleep, uh, you know, being able to perform a, a variety of scientific experiments and tasks in a habitat, you know, it includes habitat that, that's very small and with limited space. So it becomes sort of, you know, we test a variety of procedures from using various software that tells us when we have to do things and particular, you know, sequence uh, and doing things and how one crew member's task will be sort of staggered or coordinated with another crew member's task. Uh, we use a, a something called Playbook. And for that, and, and, you know, they try to mimic what, what's kind of going on on the space station and we'll use devices to measure, uh, you know, the microbiome of the habitat, the microbiome of our skin. And we can sequence the DNA, DNA with a mini DNA analyzer that I used on, on my mission. Actually, one, one first task that I did was to sequence, uh, you know, the, the microbiome of my skin and, and the microbiome of the habitat. So, the undersea habitat is also under hyperbaric pressure. It's three times the pressure of uh, a normal habitat. So that means the air is thicker and that that's exposing us to a physiological stress. So we do a variety of things oh, to wow. monitor the, the, the physiology because we're breathing, you know, three times the amount of oxygen and nitrogen and things like that. Uh, but yeah, we are lacking that, uh, you know, 
gravity. So <laughs> the gravity is essentially the same in the habitat. But when we go out during the day, we go out and do what's called EVAs, extravehicular activities. And those activities can be things like testing a device to rescue an incapacitated astronaut. Uh, it could be using a, a specific drill that can enable us to get a, a sample of a rock or a coral. Uh, part of what we do, we work with the Coral Reef Foundation to take samples of coral, uh, ID them genetically even, and then uh, put them on cards, and then we grow them in coral nurseries so we can propagate uh, different species that are that are uh, endangered, like uh, Orbicella and Sidorastria, I think, are, are two of the species that we would we would try to collect and, and propagate. Um, so you're doing so some useful work, not just testing stuff. Yeah. So what NASA does is they partner with different organizations. For example, the Coral Reef Foundation and. Our actual mission objectives will support other other objectives, environmental objectives, engineering objectives. Uh, you know, my my wife uh, was on Nemo twenty three, and she partners with National Geographic, and they have an ROV device, uh, basically an underwater drone kind of device. So uh, her. One of her projects was to use this underwater drone at nighttime, um, and she would be dry inside the habitat, but she would be operating it. You know, the the ROV would be uh, collecting things like uh, plankton samples, uh, or actually been able to. You can go at nighttime with the lights and everything, and just observe the habitat, look at various, you know, electrical lines or. or or various uh, parts of the habitat to check it uh, to make sure things are working properly. So she partners with huh. National Geographic to do some op- observational work uh, with that. And uh, yeah, and, and we have various devices from a wide range of different companies that you know are hoping to get their technology uh, into, into space. All right, so some questions about your living conditions. How long were you down there? Yeah, I was, my mission was 10 days uh, living in saturation. And, uh, and that includes at the end of it, it was about 16 hours of decompression. So a stage decompression to come out of that environment. So yeah, living uh, in 10 days in that environment with a very tight schedule (laughs) from morning till night doing experiments. Well, it's probably a good thing. Otherwise you might go crazy or you know, the, the people that you're there with in close proximity, you might, you know, get into a, a fight or annoy the shit out of each other if you weren't busy. Yeah, well, that they love to study that, right? Because uh, part, like I mentioned, part of the biggest challenge is really being able to select a team that can work together and have that, you know, team dynamic or efficient team cognition where everybody's kind of on the same page. And, uh, and things can break down quick under certain stressful situations. And they try to, uh, you get hit with a lot of stressful situations if you're, if something goes wrong, if, you know, a device breaks and then it backs up the timeline to where another person can't use it. The psychologists are kind of analyzing how that impacting the psychology of the crew. And uh, to assess this, there are a wide variety of uh, questionnaires that we'll do in written format and online format. 
And then there's also uh, a number of uh, sort of iPad, you know, devices that we use to assess uh, psychological health, uh, even things like reaction time or uh, decision making. Uh, one of them is an NIH toolbox and another is called Joggle. And Joggle is a, is a software sort of psychology uh, testing device that's actually used on the space station. So we try to mimic and, and use some of the tools they have down here. And that assesses, you know, that the crew's psychological well-being because, yeah, being confined into a small environment. If you have six people in a space that kind of correlates to like a 30-foot RV, <laughs> like camping RV, and they have to live down there and they're tasked with uh, a lot of work to do. Um, but believe it or not, I mean, my crew, uh, my commander was uh, Shell uh, Lindgren, and he's uh, he's a seasoned NASA astronaut. And I also had Pedro Decu, and he was a seasoned uh, European Space Agency astronaut. These astronauts, you know, they're obviously self, they, they are selected uh, for, for this type of occupation. So they are, uh, you know, many people apply to be an astronaut and only a, a few people make that cut. So they have to pass a number of psychological uh, tests and criteria to even to be, even be an astronaut. So you're more, I knew going into this that I was going to be among people who have, you know, been in extremely confined environments with, with crews and being able to efficiently in those environments. And it I learned tremendously good... just by watching them and uh, being among them. Yeah, any, any I really had to like, skills, kind of step uh, up my game, right? Because <laughs> yeah, any, any life skills yes. you developed from being uh, around these people? Or I was going to make a joke that it's a good place to do marriage counseling, you know, or a bad place. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the, the life skills are really... Uh, Probably the biggest take home was really seeing how professional astronauts are and being able to, uh, you know, the commander, for example, taking that leadership role and uh, holding himself accountable to things that go wrong, even if it wasn't his fault, because he's the commander of the crew, right? Uh, And being able to make important decisions if something's not working to completely abandon that particular task and reallocate time to things that should take priority, you know, especially in regards to things that will give uh, things that will keep us safe uh, for one thing, but things that will also give the the greatest scientific kind of return. And, uh, and, you know, the space station is really just like a a scientific laboratory. I would say 50% or more of what's done on the space station is really to do science and, uh, and I would say our mission, too, was probably about 50 percent. It kind of mimics that uh, to do science and maybe lumped in with that for another category is to vet out different technologies. And that could be various apps, uh, training, like physical training devices and uh, uh, yeah, and, and a wide variety of things for monitoring uh uh, health and monitoring sleep and monitoring our stress levels. Well, let, let's get into all the science part of it. Um, so you were at three atmospheres of pressure for 10 days, essentially? Yeah. Yep. We were, uh, wow. Aquarius is 62 feet below the sea surface. 
And unlike a submarine, submarines can dive down, you know, obviously far deeper than that. But a submarine stays at, at one atmosphere, right? So the Aquarius habitat, research habitat, it's like taking a cup of water or taking a cup of air and turning the cup upside down and then pushing that cup into a pool and then going all the way down to 62 feet, right? That cup will essentially be uh, uh, compressed to three atmospheres absolute, you know, three total atmospheres where you're at one atmosphere now at your desk or wherever you're at, unless you're, you know, in the mountains somewhere, uh, then that would be even less. Uh, so you're living and, and that, that pressure, that level of pressure is definitely altering our, our physiology. And, uh, and when you scuba dive, you go down to, you know, similar depth, 62 feet for recreational scuba diving. And then you have to come up uh, at a predetermined time point. So you don't have what's called, uh, so you don't get decompression sickness, right? Uh, but with saturation diving and living in saturation, our bodies are saturated with the oxygen and the nitrogen. And it's the nitrogen that can cause a lot of problems if we try to come up to the surface. So after living down there for a few days, if someone was to get an infection or, or break a bone or something like that, and if they were to shoot up to the top of the surface, they would die a very painful death if they were not rapidly put into a, a, a recompression chamber. Or hyperbaric chamber, because you well, need the, to, you, the nitrogen would come out of their blood and would cause an it, embolism or a blockage. Exactly. Yeah. So you would have uh, decompression sickness, and maybe uh, more commonly, or, or, or also known as dents. And uh, when you open a bottle of soda and you see, you know, a carbonated beverage, and you see the bubbles coming out, that that's essentially what's happening in your in your. Uh, arteries and your blood vessels and uh, your tissues and those bubbles can impede blood flow and cause a lot of problems so there are very uh in scuba diving there are protocols that you need to adhere to and um as in military diving and this is part of the training you know we learn about um that is part of uh, being a, a saturation diver and there's a fairly complex stage decompression to come out of that environment. So uh, my my commander, Shell, actually posted on Twitter, it took him far less time to return to Earth from the space station than it did to return to the surface of Earth from Nemo, right? It took like 17 hours for Nemo, and it took about it takes about five hours, give or take, uh, for astronauts to get back to Earth from, from the space station. So, uh, so it takes, takes actually longer and, and a lot of, you know, the astronauts that I've talked to who have been aquanauts in that environment and the commander for the last mission that my, my wife served on Samantha Cristoforetti, the, uh, uh, Italian, uh, European space agency astronaut, uh, said that, you know, it, it really did. She was in space for 200 consecutive days. She said it really did simulate sort of from an operational perspective, uh, living and working in space. And, and my commander said the same thing as did the other astronauts that were part of the crew. So I've heard of, you know, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, but that's, you know, for an hour or two hours, 90 minutes. 
what what physiologically have you identified that it does to you being at three atmospheres of pressure for 10 days? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So uh, I would have to say for humans, the, the, it wasn't even known really in the 1940s, I guess in the 1950s with the Sea Lab missions, did it become known that humans could actually live in a saturation environment? uh, for, for, you know, weeks or even months on end, uh, C lab one, two, and three kind of researched this. And so it was like in the, the mid fifties, you know, prior to that, it was thought that, you know, humans couldn't even live or work in these environments for prolonged periods of time without having to, to desaturate uh, or decompress. So there are, uh, a number of things that happen, uh, one is that the partial pressure of oxygen usually goes up and that can increase uh, reactive oxygen species in the body and increase inflammatory markers. Uh, there are changes in renal physiology. There's a, a mild uh, diuretic effect that happens in that environment. Uh, acutely, uh, some hormones start to change like cortisol goes up and, uh, but you know what's most striking is that humans are essentially non-compressible, right? Because because <laughs> fluids and, and solids are are not compressible, but but uh, air is, right? So the only really air-filled spaces we have are sort of our lungs and our esophagus and everything, and then the air going in there is, uh, you know, at a higher degree of compression, but it's not really compressing us per se, because we're fluid. We're basically like water sacks, right? I mean, it's like proteins, electrolytes and, and H2O. So we're essentially non-compressible. So the remarkable thing is that living in that extreme environment of three times the amount of pressure does not crush you in any way. <laughs> it's just, uh, it does have some physiological effects and is a stress to the body, probably due to the partial pressures of gases that we're breathing. Uh, but if that's mimicked to simulate the partial pressures uh, or the oxygen concentration, I would say, uh, of a, a normobaric environment, uh, much of the effects is, can be mitigated if, if we have if we titrate oxygen to the right level. Too little oxygen, then you become hypoxic too much oxygen and that's hyperoxic and your body will proportionally make more reactive oxygen species in, in response to a higher partial pressure of oxygen. So if we were to breathe and we do before decompressing, we breathe uh, like a hundred percent oxygen for an hour as part of the initiation of our decompression. Now, if we were to breathe, you know, if, if we breathe 100% oxygen in that environment for longer, we would have oxygen toxicity fairly rapidly, and uh, which could be seizures and then later pulmonary oxygen toxicity, which can damage our lungs. So, uh, so what was the um, what was the mixture of air? You know, what the mixture of air we breathe that you know normally is? Yes, I guess approximately 19% oxygen, etc. What was it down there? Did they titrate it differently? Uh, yeah, it was, we were getting air essentially from the environment that are sort of pumped into tanks. And then those tanks are, uh, sort of connected and there's positive flow of air coming in and then air is kind of, uh, leaking out. So it's constantly being flushed. Uh, and then the CO2 is being scrubbed 
So it's essentially, uh, you know, uh, three times or, or yeah, three atmospheres absolute of oxygen. So, uh, so, you know, on an order of three times higher than what you would be breathing, uh, but and, and nitrogen too would be higher. And nitrogen's inert. Well, nitrogen is inert at that pressure. But if we were to go down to a hundred feet of seawater or uh, or lower, two hundred or three hundred, nitrogen has a narcotic effect. So. And I believe it has a mild, a very mild narcotic effect at, you know, that level at 62 feet. The biggest issue is in space travel too. And this also relates to the space station is that the concentration of carbon dioxide is 10 to 20 times higher in this environment and is very similar to the space station. And that's the biggest concern uh, from a physiological point of view is the high concentration of carbon dioxide that continuously needs to be scrubbed out. Well, and so is it kept the best they can do is keep it at 10 to 20 times higher or yeah, are they yeah, able to keep uh, it at, at what it's like at the surface or they can't, they just physically can't. Well, yeah, they do. They have systems in place and this, the space station has two systems in place that that are very complex systems to scrub out the co2 but they only operate one of the systems so if one breaks they can operate the other so one of the one of the questions is uh should they run both co2 scrubber systems at the same time to decrease the partial pressure of co2 from for example 2000 parts per million down to, you know, uh, uh, you know, 500 parts per million or something that would be closer, you know, humans breathe about two, 400 parts per million or thereabouts. So it is, uh, it is, it gets around 3000 parts per million. So it gets about 10 times higher. And, and that's about what it stays in the Nemo habitat. And in a couple cases, it jumped up to about 10,000 parts per million. And it's like the red buzzer went off. And then we had to uh, exchange the scrubber material that, that scrubs out the CO2. So it's uh, like it's essentially sodium hydroxide uh, or lithium hydroxide. There's various scrubber material. So we basically have to pull the scrubbers out and dump in uh, new material that helps pull the CO2 out of the air as the ventilation system runs it through, uh, runs it through the system. And the monitor will tell you essentially when that needs to be done, because when you change the scrubber material, you see a very refreshing drop in CO2. And then as time goes on and the scrubber material becomes sort of exhausted or consumed, uh, by consuming CO2, or you get more crew members come in the habitat, uh, more activity, or you're doing physical activity, say you're exercising in the habitat, you'll see that reflect in the CO2 level. And uh, by far the most, you know, the biggest problem that presents itself in a confined environment, a space environment or undersea environment has not necessarily been oxygen. That's a concern, but CO2 has been a far bigger concern. Uh, you know, that's reflected in the movie. Uh, well, 
in Apollo 13, right? Where they had to essentially build a CO2 scrubber to stay alive uh, on that movie. So or in that mission. So, uh, so CO2 is a big problem. And I know Scott Kelly, who uh, stayed in space for a year or more, has been a very vocal advocate of the CO2 problem in space and, and has really advised NASA uh, in his book. I think he mentions it 58 times throughout his book called Endurance, which is a fantastic book for your listeners. Uh, really, you know, his, his message was that the CO2 problem is a very big problem that needs to be mitigated. And I know as a research scientist that elevating CO2 up to 2,000 to 3,000 parts per million, which would reflect the International Space Station or the NEMO habitat, starts to impact things like inflammatory pathways in the body and even the, the, the intestinal mucosa. So the tight junctions that hold the epithelial cells together start to be impacted by CO2 and are sensitive to that. So your gut actually becomes more leaky and, you know, your, the, your, your gut permeability can really impact your overall immune health. Most of our immune system is actually in our gut. So when that's compromised, it lets the external environment enter into the blood and there are proteins and molecules that can, that can wreak havoc when we have a, a leaky gut. So, you know, as a research scientist, so much I, I to, research. There's so much that. to talk about here. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the CO2 is probably one of the bigger things that we have. We've been monitoring and I've been measuring, making measurements on myself. And we have physiological measurements and sleep measurements. But I think in the future in space analog missions, we'll probably want to direct more resources and funding to really understanding this more because it's it's. There's a lot of things that happen, and we don't understand why hypercapnia, which is high CO2, uh, is causing these problems. Well, yeah, just thinking about it. So uh, oxygen is at a higher pressure, so it's being driven into your – there's more of a driving force, I guess, to go into your body, into your tissues. But then the CO2 concentration being higher, there would be less of a driving force, I would think, to expel it you know, through your lungs. So – I. I don't know how that would change the composition, the relative compositions of the two and tissue saturation in your body. What, yeah, well, what have you observed? It has, has some interesting physiological effects. It's a vasodilator. And because it dilates blood vessels, it can actually increase uh, blood flow, maybe even brain blood flow. And a lot of astronauts report getting headaches. So, uh, And they report that those headaches go away on the space station if they, uh, if the CO2 levels drop and that could be by, you know, fixing the CO2 monitor or CO2 scrubber, or if there, there's a bunch of crew members that leave, uh, the space station and there's less crew on inside the space station, the CO2 levels will drop and they will be able to feel that. And I know astronauts like Scott Kelly, uh, are very sensitive, and other astronauts like uh, Samantha Cristoforetti said it was sort of like a problem, but not like a problem that really impaired her performance. She felt personally, although she did say when the scrubber was fixed, it was like walking through a forest; like the air was very fresh, and and that she could feel that. But uh, but it, for other people, it becomes like a, a really big problem. Uh, 
the yeah the dynamics change at the level of the lung but the biggest effect co2 has is that it's a potent vasodilator and it can also uh co2 can react with various uh redox biochemistry pathways to exacerbate or increase the formation of certain reactive oxygen species and that's, that's something that we actually study in the lab so you can actually get higher oxidative stress with the same amount of oxygen if it's at a higher partial pressure of CO2. And we are looking at this in the brain, but I think it can, uh, it's ubiquitous throughout the body. So you're getting a greater uh, uh, oxidative hit. So I think it, it might be important to understand uh, how astronauts or people in extreme environments can augment their antioxidant defenses. And that could be by stimulating our own natural endogenous antioxidant mechanisms and ketones. We feel do that. Ketones are epigenetic regulators that increase the expression of enzymes and systems in the body that can allow us to cope with uh, high levels of oxidative stress. And ketones can be elevated with the ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones or fasting or a combination of those three things. Um, and, you know, it may be more important to supplement with antioxidants. Uh, well, we're pretty sure it's, it's maybe more important to supplement with antioxidants when we're in these extreme environments. And, uh, and that has been sort of an area of ongoing research, even in past NEMO missions, looking at oxidative markers in the blood and uh, inflammatory markers. Uh, inflammation can increase as a consequence of high levels of oxidative stress. So, uh, so, so I think it's, what, what, it's an ongoing area of research. Well, what's the constraint? It just, it's just not energy efficient to run the scrubbers hard enough or they want to see, you know, okay, they, they figure, all right, well, you know, 2000 parts per million is tolerable. We're not going to make any effort to get it lower than that. I mean, what's the, What's the constraint here? Why can't they make the air quality better? Yeah, that's a really good point. So it's, uh, let me see how, how to put it in terms. So you could probably, it's, it takes a certain amount of effort to, to get the CO2 level concentration from like 20,000 parts per million, right? Which would really start to impact and make people sick down to 2000 parts per million. So it takes, uh, you know, a certain amount of effort, right? It'll take an equal amount of effort to bring that 2000 parts per million down to like 500 parts per million. You know what I mean? So it's relatively easy to put systems, filtration systems in place to move the air, uh, to, uh, to make it tolerable and within the limitations of, uh, federal agencies for safety. Uh, but to, but the amount of the energetic cost, the, the, the resources and, uh, the maintenance associated with bringing that 2000 parts per million CO2 level down to, uh, what is ambient level of CO2, uh, like, like three or 400 parts per million that, that, that's a pretty big challenge. So, uh, so I think what, what we have not really, what has not been accepted, uh, although the undersea medicine community, the Navy, 
is probably more advanced in their understanding of the CO2 consequences on the body than NASA is. And I know those two agencies are talking about mitigation strategies uh, for, for CO2. And I think there's a lot of technologies that are being developed, like in submarines, for example, that can be applied to uh, uh, space habitat. Uh, but I, but they do they have a very complicated and part of part of the problem is that the system that's on uh, the space station now is incredibly complicated and it's difficult to fix that system when it goes down. And it takes an entire day really to, to basically take that system apart and fix it. And there's two of them. And if they both break, then there's a big problem. Right. Uh, yeah, but I think, yeah. I think technology and systems will evolve that will allow these habitats uh, to basically come fairly close to ambient conditions, but we're not at that level right now. Well, what about uh, plants? Could you, you know, have a yeah. whole ceiling composed of lichen or moss or something, and you know, would that help out? Or are plants not nearly efficient enough to, to scrub the air? Uh, well, yeah, they do contribute. So you, plants that undergo photosynthesis and that grow, you know, that the photosynthesis and the that carbon that is essentially, uh, you know, the the growing plant that that was once CO two, right? So the <laughs> That's why things like, uh, believe it or not, corn and, and grasses and uh, I guess the rainforest, the things that proliferate from a photosynthetic point of view uh, and light drives the photosynthetic process really captures a lot of carbon. Uh, so that's one strategy, but it's like, you know, in, in regards to metabolic CO2 production, it's not a whole lot if... Uh, if you have, uh, if you have like a base on Mars or a base on the lunar surface, it would be advantageous to have a wide range of plants growing that you could uh, optimally use for food that would be capturing that carbon. And I think, uh, you know, probably you can even genetically modify uh, various types of food to grow faster and to suck up more uh, essentially uh, carbon, you know, so I, I think that's I just wonder if, um, you know, is there a calculation of for one respiring human of a certain weight, you know, how many plants are needed to offset that person's carbon dioxide production by, you know, 50% or hundred percent. Yeah. And we know that. And we think like something like a biodome, you know, and those experiments were, where, where CO2 was monitored, uh, the CO2 burden of a respiring human will far exceed the CO2 capturing capacity of plants in a confined habitat like the, uh, like the space station. But if you had a large area like a biodome or something that, that's on the surface of a planet where you have more room uh, to create, then you could have a wide variety of, of plants that could probably, uh, you know, deal with all the, the CO2 burden if it wasn't, you know, heavily populated by humans. So that's that's easy to do and has been studied in, in different ways. But not, wonder, not, it, for you know, space, not, not for a space capsule or not for a space station, but for, uh, but yeah, that, that's a big, 
a big project and people are working on that project when it comes to the lunar surface or the Mars surface is creating sort of, sort of these natural CO2 um, sinks that are really would not only suck up CO2, but be producing food, you know, and that's what plants do really well and designing agricultural strategies to do that and using things like aquaponics and, uh, is another, you know, strategy to do that. So what, what kind of experiments did you do on yourself and what did you notice? How did your body react? You mentioned cortisol being elevated, um, microbiome yeah. you sampled, you know, did this put a selection pressure on the microbiome of your skin or your mouth or other places you sampled from? And did you notice changes? I mean, what else did you see happening? Yeah, the microbiome samples that we have uh, for gut microbiome still have to be analyzed. So we've just collected another crew sample from Nemo 23. I was on Nemo 22. And, uh, you know, over the course of a year, the cost of analyzing these samples just keeps dropping and the accuracy and the data you get back is greater. So, so waiting to analyze that has not really hurt us in any way, especially from a financial perspective. Uh, we did the, the microbiome of our skin, which we sort of sequenced it using the mini DNA analyzer was uh, the results suggest that our skin microbiome starts to reflect the microbiome that is uh, the bugs that are present in in the ocean. So those bugs tend to tend to live on us even after we have showered and rinsed off and things like that. Uh, they tend to live and grow on our skin when you're living in the undersea environment. That kind of makes sense. Right. But uh, so they are not we don't think they're hurting us in any way. But uh, some people in that habitat living in that habitat broke out in hives or had strange rash rashes. And we never really determined what was causing those rashes. I didn't have any problems. So maybe maybe that's evidence that ketones can (laughs) can uh, be protective against changes in the microenvironment or the microbiome, the skin microbiome. So, but yeah, you work with microbiome. ketones a lot. Did you, yeah, um, yeah. were you on a ketogenic diet? Were the other people in the uh, environment on the same diet or different diets? So, the objective was to really understand how uh, to not change any variables in regards to diet. Since I was already on a ketogenic diet, I was able to, uh, I, I continued with a ketogenic diet. And, it, and I'm a, sort of an outlier in that way because it, it is interesting to compare, and I can't talk about it until it gets published, to compare my physiological and even psychological response to the extreme environment compared to others who were not in a state of nutritional ketosis. Like, like how did how did certain parameters change if you're in ketosis relative to people who were not on a ketogenic diet and maybe didn't have that? Uh, so we have data from you know, 10 people now, and uh, they were all on their, what would be equivalent to their standard diet. So uh, the food down there sort of reflected what they would eat normally, which was not a ketogenic diet. But my food, since my, my, my normal diet is ketogenic, I stayed in a state of ketosis throughout, uh, throughout the entire uh, mission. And uh, I even recorded 
when I came out of an extravehicular activity, an EVA that was like a little over five hours, I believe, my uh, blood glucose level was down to like 2.3 millimolar and my ketone levels were up in the six millimolar range or more or higher, oh, like wow. 6.6. So my ketone levels were three times higher than my glucose. So what essentially that means, and our body can use both of those fuels fairly readily, that my brain, you know, the majority of my brain energy was being derived from ketone bodies. And I did feel really good coming out of it. And I had to measure again to make sure those numbers were correct. But, uh, but yeah, that was uh, probably a consequence of being on the ketogenic diet and then working in the water water can pull heat away from your body much faster, even with a wetsuit. So even though the water was pretty warm, uh, because it was, you know, in the keys in, in June, uh, by the time I got out, I was in a state of mild hypothermia, even though you don't really feel it. You start shaking a little bit uncontrollably, kind of like a little, a little, uh, tremor in your, in your hands, you can kind of feel it, but it reflects metabolically as an increase in, in metabolism and probably things like catecholamines and stuff, which, which I measured and were elevated. Um, so, and we also have sleep data too, and HRV data, which kind of can, can give some, and we're still analyzing that data and putting the new group of, of crew and analyzing that. And we'll reflect sort of the balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic tone and how that changes or how that's altered, yeah. you know, before. It sounds like um, there's so much data that you could pass it out to, you know, I don't know, four or five grad students and have them all work up papers on all the things that you recorded just on yourself. Absolutely. I could probably, uh, we could probably take a year off and just analyze and write papers. Uh, but we have to continue sort of chugging along and analyzing in, in little bits and pieces while we maintain sort of the, the lab, the lab research, you know, the active projects we have going on. Uh, and another, the, the data is very sensitive because uh, we got approval through not only, you know, our institution, but also NASA and ESA. And when you're dealing with data from astronauts, there's an extremely high level of oversight. So anyone who sees the data, touches the data, or is a part of an analysis needs to be on the IRB protocol, like the ethics committee protocol. Uh, even things like the microbiome, you have to go through a lot of extra paperwork because you're, you're kind of hold the astronaut's DNA, right? Because cells from the fecal sample could be from the actual astronaut and you could basically derive who that astronaut was, even though all the data is de-identified and you could potentially come up, you know, and show that this DNA shows some kind of SNP that would suggest that if they went into deep space, they would be compromised by the radiation in that space. Like, like these are the sort of things that, that NASA sort of are concerned about being able to, uh, that, data from astronauts could be, you know, put into the public domain and that could impact their future uh, potential for, for being on a mission. So there, there's a lot, there's a lot to consider when dealing with this. And that could be, 
you know, genetic data is a very high concern, but it could be physiological data, biochemical data, psychological data. So all this stuff, we need to like move very slowly and methodically as we analyze this and think about writing it up uh, because the implications, because you can, you know, you can go online and Wikipedia and look up Nemo and see who, see who like the crew members were. So you could say, oh, well, this person does not react you know, someone in the crew uh, did not react very well to this psychological test or something like that. So, or didn't react well to that intervention. So there's, there's a lot of, and these are things I didn't really consider or kind of know about getting into this research, but we have to kind of work closely uh, and, and work very thoughtfully as we put this data together that it doesn't uh, sort of... Uh, make any any suggestions that that certain that key members of the of the, the crew uh may not be adaptive to these extreme environments so we have to consider the results as we move forward but um but we like to see big changes right because these extreme environments produce big changes and our overall what i've spent my career on is developing sort of protocols that are countermeasures to these extreme environments that would allow us to have physical, psychological, and neurological resilience in these extreme environments. And that means changes in the partial pressure of oxygen and CO2 and and just, you know, things that are associated with extreme environments. It's like we want to preserve uh, our physical capabilities to enhance uh, mission success and safety. Well, you could look at, uh, I mean, mean, it's too too much of a stretch, but I mean, you could look at aging or you could look at a whole host of uh, conditions that someone lives in as extreme environments of their own, you know, having cancer or whatever it may be. So, you know, the work you're doing, I'm sure it applies way beyond just, you know, literally these kind of extreme environments. It does. And and it's a little scary, but these these environments where there's a high... Uh, partial pressure of oxygen, you know, in theory could be accelerating the aging process. Uh, and many people, you know, there's many that the, re, the redox theory of aging would suggest that. But the data so far really does not suggest that. And even Scott Kelly's data, I mean, his, his twin uh, who, who stayed on earth, uh, Mark, uh, did not you know, really, really suggest that being in space environment where you're exposed to considerably more radiation and, and factors that should be speeding the aging process, uh, it wasn't, that wasn't clear that, uh, that, that it is accelerating processes that are associated with aging. And I think much what's more important, and I think will be a key area of research is the epigenetic effect of things like exercise, nutrition, and even uh, psychological well-being, and how, uh, from an epigenetic perspective, not our not our given sort of somatic DNA blueprint, but the expression of those genes, and how we can manipulate, uh, suppress, or increase the expression of certain genes that will give us. Uh, resilience, protection, and optimize us in these extreme environments. That's becoming progressively a more uh, a topic of greater interest in funding agencies like DARPA, DOD. Uh, I know the Office of Native Research is really interested in epigenetic 
uh, modification and, and whether that be a drug, nutrition, or a nutritional uh, supplement to augment that. Well, I think with the Kelly twins, uh, it was observed that what hundreds and hundreds of uh, maybe even thousands of changes occurred epigenetically and genetically, right? Or epigenetically, I mean. Yeah. But then yeah. reversed? Uh, yeah. Yeah. The data is still being uh, sort of analyzed and interpreted in different ways. But I think uh, there was, and it sort of gotten, it got taken out of context in, in different ways. But I think the, uh, the take home message is that, you know, these extreme environments do impact us uh, from the standpoint that it impacts the expression uh, of certain genes and, uh, and does not necessarily fundamentally change our genetic blueprint in a big way but it's more likely to exchange the, the uh, change expression uh, of genes. And I think really that, that should be the focus uh, because mm. you could take many different stressors, you know, here, exercise, a drug, a food, high sugar, high fat, low carb, you know, many different things can alter probably in a more uh, dramatic way. Uh, these epigenetic modifiers that can influence uh, ultimately, our, our blueprint over time. But I think the so what's, what's your um, what, what's your overall assessment of you know uh, our likelihood of colonizing Mars or colonizing the Moon? You know, now that you've been in an extreme environment and you've been around some of the technology involved and the, the challenges, do you think it's far harder than we think? Easier than we think? What's your, what are your general thoughts there? Well, I, I think uh, a lot of steps are being you know, taken to, uh, to colonize the lunar surface first, right. In a way that's, uh, safer and not as restrictive. Um, uh, you know, the, the Apollo mission was an incredible, I, I keep revisiting like books and movies and, and stories associated with the Apollo mission. It was just amazing that we were able to, to pull that off. And I think the, the, the next challenge is to really, you know, make it safe and make it productive uh, to, to land on the lunar surface and to set up systems and strategies in place as a launching pad, ultimately a learning place and a launching pad for Mars exploration. So I think it's, uh, you know, NASA has been very cautious. A lot of people ask, like, why haven't we been to the moon, <laughs> you know, in, in 50 years? Uh, and I think there's a lot of good reasons for that, that the, the research and the time spent through all the shuttle missions and, uh, uh, you know, on, on the uh, space station to the research that was done there, that research is going into uh, putting together systems in place to make it safer and more efficient and more cost effective uh, to explore the moon and to uh, to ultimately go to Mars, which the data keep, keeps getting pushed, pushed back. But I think that's for a good reason. I think we need to, uh, the, the whole sort of political environment could change pretty fast if there's another uh, dramatic catastrophic incident if we go to the moon. So I think it's been delayed, you know, for, for good reasons. And I think the science that we, that the essential science that was done on the international space station, which is a floating research station, that science will be put into very good use 
and uh, and it's just you know a matter of time. Uh, but it really does come down to uh, research dollars, federal research dollars, and, and, and private industry to, to drive this next phase of exploration. So as this knowledge you learn things, you know, uh, being in this environment for ten days, is it changing the focus or direction of your research? Or are you still continuing as you were, or do you have new insights that uh, now you want to change things up? Yeah, well, I spent many years as a basic research scientist studying like cellular and molecular mechanisms of extreme environments. And then, you know, as my research program advanced, we were able to move those things into a wide range of animal models. So now we're, you know, we're doing mice, rats, and even pig studies. And now we're, uh, I'm gradually shifting work from the basic science proof of concept to the human implementation uh, of these of these strategies. And that could be in a university setting or in an operational setting, like uh, like on an EMO mission. So I would like to allocate more time and effort and resources to uh, to directing our science into more uh, human operational conditions. So I see that as a big part of the, our growing research uh, objectives is to allocate more time, energy, and funding into uh, to actual you know human-centered operational uh, type missions where we're vetting out different procedures, technologies, and you know ketone technologies and, and ways to enhance our metabolic physiology to make us uh, more resilient in these extreme environments. And there's, there's many ways to do it. And I think we just have to move methodically and vet out what works best in all these different model systems and then apply what we conceive as the optimal approach in these, uh, these training missions for NASA and ultimately uh, maybe take some of these technologies to space. Were you in this uh, in, in Nemo with your wife or was she there at a different time than you? Yeah, I was, my mission was actually, uh, in 2017. So it's been a while, but we still have data that we're analyzing and that, and my wife's mission in 2018, the mission was canceled because, uh, the hurricane, uh, Irma really damaged the habitat. So my wife's mission was an all female crew and that was over the summer. And, uh, and she spent nine days and there was a delay going down on, on the first day, but she was spent nine days in the habitat. So we essentially repeated uh, many, if not all, of the experiments I did on my mission, on Nemo 22, on her mission. And it's great that we had a female crew, so now we have a good balance of male and female data. And we can look at the difference, too. An important difference is to understand how uh, males and females uh, may respond differently in these environments. Well, it was a joke if you were down there at the same time she was. It would be a, a test of your relationship. Right? Yeah. Well, I did. When I was down there uh, for my mission, I actually had my birthday down there, and she came down uh, as a support diver and uh, <laughs> delivered, like, some, some a birthday gift to me. And uh, so I returned the favor, although she didn't have a birthday down there. Uh, I delivered, you know, a small gift to her. Uh, when I, I function as a support diver and I also uh, function as a mission control sort of research coordinator 
on mainland. And when I wasn't on mainland, I did uh, some support diving for the mission. So, and she was uh, part of my support diving team, you know, when I was down on mission 22. So it's pretty good that uh, uh, we're very fortunate that we were able to both participate in this and, and working with NASA has been probably one of the most incredible experiences of our lives, uh, just being selected for this type of research and to get our science on these missions ha- has really been amazing to us and just working with them and seeing how professional they are. So, so we look forward to partnering with them in the future and hopefully doing more missions with them. And even if we can't be crew members, we can get our science on the mission so we can continue to collect more data and, and refine sort of our uh, understanding of how these extreme environments impact, you know, things like microbiome, sleep, stress, psychological parameters, and then further sort of develop and uh, refine our mitigation strategies to optimize our health and our performance in, in these environments. So, well, all right. So when, when do you think some of your data will be coming out and where can people find it when it does come out? Yeah, well, we'll definitely be posting it on uh, on my website, uh, ketonutrition.org. But we will first, you know, we want to we'll put together the manuscripts for publication in peer-reviewed journals, uh, which would be found on, on PubMed. And prior to that, though, uh, we'll probably start presenting, now that we have two groups of data and we have a high enough sample size to get some statistics going, we'll probably start putting together the preliminary reports and presenting at some of the uh, annual conferences like uh, undersea uh, UHMS, undersea hyperbaric medicine society and, uh, and also the aerospace medicine society meetings where, you know, we have presented historically in the past and then that helps us get feedback on our actual study in sort of preliminary format. And then uh, we use that feed- feedback to help further refine the overall study and manuscript for publication. So, yeah, we'll be I travel around and give talks on the meeting and stuff, too, but just really have it not put it together yet because there's a lot of deep analysis going into uh understanding these things just doing just the hrv data alone we have a massive amount of it so we have another (laughs) group of people just working on that project alone and then the microbiome project as i mentioned you know we want to we're negotiating prices on the best way to analyze this so we can get some uh fruitful data from from uh, the samples that we have well very good well done it's always great to have you the you generate more data than anyone I know, and you, know, you get to have the fun, and other people analyze it. Yeah. I guess it could be argued. <laughs> I have but to tell you, no. yeah, though. Yeah, so I mean, it's good to be the. Uh, it's nice uh, to be the, kind of like the, the the head person, the go-to person. But it's really our whole research team, and that includes uh, many people that you know, like Andrew Gutnick too, who was an uh, amazing asset for for my mission. He he really ran the. Mm-hmm the sleep uh, studies and the body composition studies and stuff too. Uh, so yeah, I have, I'm very fortunate to have an incredible crew of researchers uh, working under me. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Dom, thanks again for coming. Uh, third time's the charm. I really appreciate you being here. <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Richard. You're listening to the future tech health podcast with Richard Jacobs until I reached age 40. I never realized the obvious, 
that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.